Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club, where we are pouring a fine, fine glass of your favorite memoirs, and you can taste them and experience them through our words. And if you don't like it, send the bottle back, read the book yourself. And if you do like it, well, come on in. Actually, this book title is not about wine. This was about liquor, but I'm still doing the wine metaphor. You guys ever had Everclear? That's what this podcast is. It'll fuck you up, man. You take one sip of us and you're fucking down and out for days. You'll never experience life the same. You'll make mistakes you'll regret till you die. This podcast is jungle juice, mostly spit. True story about me. I wasn't a big drinker in high school as I to this day am not. And when I went to college, I remember my friend was like, oh, are you drinking now? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm in college. And they're like, oh, what's your favorite alcohol? And I was like, I love jungle juice. (laughs) And this is my friend who had gone to NYU and she was like, I'm getting really into old fashions. I was like, I love whatever they put in that giant container in the middle of a room. (laughs) Is it mostly nerds rope? That's what fucks me up. Anyway, Ashley. Yeah. Should we remind people of the shows we're doing? Washington, D.C. The show sold out, but we were like, no, we can't stop there. So we are actually moving our D.C. show into a bigger venue. So if you have not gotten tickets yet to D.C., we made more. There's still a little bit of time, so make sure you grab those before D.C. sells out again. We are also coming to Philadelphia, Denver, San Francisco, Minneapolis. We added a second show in Chicago. Atlanta and Nashville. I am so excited to see you guys in real life on the road. We'll see you there. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and you read a memoir, what would last week's chapter be called? It would be called We're Up Early to Give Ourselves a Pat on the Back. Oh my God, I love that. I'm just really proud of myself. I've been trying to re-enter the like low alcohol domain and I've done a really good job of it. It's summertime in New York. I just was realizing how hard it is to be social but not drink because everything is drinking. Like everything you do is meeting up for drinks. And this week I went out for drinks with a friend and I just got a ginger ale like a fucking narc. It was incredible. I went to a 4th of July party, two 4th of July parties and had one drink the whole day. Wow, Ash. I'm really proud of myself. And I've really been putting an effort forth into like really minimizing it. And I feel so good. And Bug wakes me up in the morning and I say, hey, baby, I was already up. Doesn't even matter. Let's hit the road. She's not dry. She's not wet. She's moist. Exactly. Moist for the summer. You know what? That word does not bother me. It doesn't bother me either. Because I like cake. I like my cake moist. Suck on that, haters. (laughs) Or wet. (laughs) Like a tiramisu. Claire, if you were a celebrity, what would you title the chapter of last week in your memoir? I'm a mess. Okay. I'm a mess. (laughs) Sure. Oh, you know what? You have been falling to pieces. (laughs) I just remembered. (laughs) Okay. So I started using retinol like six months ago and I did exactly what you're supposed to do. So do not come into my comments. Somebody was like, don't use it in the morning and go outside. I was like, yeah, I know. And people are like, have you thought about using it with moisturizer or have you thought about like easing into it? I've been using it for six months correctly. I use it like twice a week. I don't even use a full retinol. I use a retinoid over the counter. I'm very sensitive, but I got my little system down. And for whatever reason, I don't know if I was just like out in the sun a little bit longer. I don't know what happened, but it backfired on me. So all week, my face has been flaking off in a really itchy, chappy, uncomfortable way. I'm waking up eyes swollen, face like gills. Gills? Yeah. You ever seen a fish? That's how I look. Have you tried dunking your head in water to see if they are gills? (laughs) Actually, I have been doing ice face baths. So yeah. (laughs) And I can't breathe in there. So no fish here. But then on top of that, I got hit by the G train (laughs) door. I got hit by a door of the G train. And now I'm all bruised on my back arm. And then here's the one that I haven't told you yet. Uh Uh-oh. I went earring shopping last weekend with my friend. And we like split two bottles of wine. So I was pretty buzzed when I got there. And not only did I lose an entire earring, but I lost a back of the other one. So I've been walking around for the last week with just one earring front in. (laughs) So when they re-pierced my ears, only one needed to be re-pierced. The other one, like the hole was still open. And so obviously I prioritized the recently pierced ear. And so every night I'm like waking up four or five times in the middle of the night being like, is it in? Because I don't want it to heal up. And I just have to keep pushing it back in. And it is just in there loosey goose. (laughs) And every day I think, Claire, you live in New York City. You could find a backup pair of earrings. I think you even told me you accidentally bought 500 earring backs once. I do have 500 earring backs in my apartment right now. I'm just pirate style. I feel like fucking Johnny Depp. Just a disgusting, fucked up looking mess with an earring situation that's not up to protocol. You want me to get you new earrings for your birthday? 
Yeah. Like an early birthday present? Well, you know what I want you to do for my birthday? Oh, yeah. I already actually put in my request for this year's birthday gift. Have you done it? That costs me no money, just my dignity, but I'll get you a pair of earrings too. I want Ashley to ask this girl on TikTok where her sunglasses are from. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, should we get into this week's book? Oh, yeah, because this conversation was strong, but Gabrielle Union got something stronger. It's the summer of sequels, baby. I was thinking about that. I guess, what's the group? Her and Tori spelling? Hollywood's two preeminent young actresses. Has Tori Spelling ever been in a Bring It On? Has anyone checked the cast of the 8th, 9th, or 10th? She could be in all of them, to be honest. Like, not the first one, obviously, but like all of the later ones. No, she's too old. She could play somebody's bitch mom. She'd play like the best friend's bitch mom from like another team. No, I feel like she plays the white team's captain's mom who like thinks it's fine to be racist and gets her comeuppance at the end of the movie. I can't believe how in love with Tori Spelling we are. I can't believe that we can't get her out of our minds. It's the summer of sequels, baby. And all I can think of is our gorgeous repeats. Anyway, so we're back with another Gabrielle Union special. She's the New York Times bestselling author of We're Going to Need More Wine. And this time she begs the question, you got anything stronger? And I will say these topics are stronger, but this book is front loaded. I really enjoyed it. I will say, I think that if you want to read a nice book this summer, there are thought provoking questions and thought provoking topics and like beautiful moments of vulnerability. But the front half has more. (laughs) Yeah, I think on the heels of the success of her first book, they must have had a deadline to get this book out there. And I wish she had waited because the chapters that are like full and good are so full and good. And I have a lot of respect for Gabrielle Union because you can genuinely feel the care and intention behind this book. When she is open and vulnerable, she is really revealing parts of herself that are hidden by most people in order to like make people feel less alone and like help others grow. And I think she's really successful when she does it. But you can feel that this book was 65% done. And if she had given herself a couple more years to like build out a couple more chapters... I think this would have been like a book of the decade. But yeah, there's some hits and some misses. Like you feel the scramble for a page count, I think, towards the end. Yeah, there are some parts where it's just like, that does sound like it was a fun party. Thank you for describing it to me. I will say I was a bit nervous with the introduction because it had one of the things I hate the most, a long metaphor that's a bit corny. And it's like taking the metaphor of the title, you got anything stronger? And she's like, listen, my first book was like our first date. But this is like when we go on our first vacation together and the house is charming, but it's not what we thought we'd get on the Airbnb. And it's just like on and on about this metaphor of a first weekend away. And it gets so intense. The metaphor ends by being like, you won't be the same. Life, it turns out, is a series of mini deaths and thankfully rebirths. And I was like, wow, this was a big vacation. (laughs) It was a weekend. It was a long, long weekend. I do love that sentiment, though. And I do think that is what this book is about, is all the times you think there's no way I can move on from this. I will never recover. I will never be the same. Yes. And I kind of found that to be like a truth and something that is helpful to hear that that is life is constantly having these moments that you think, how can I get past this? And then you get past it and you're not the same and you are changed. And that's yeah, maybe it's good. I mean, I guess not always. That's true. All you can do is try and make it for the good. No, I mean, I enjoyed the sentiment of it. But yeah, the long winding metaphor made it a little bit less easy to digest. So chapter one, loved even as a thought. Where were we? Right. You and I left off in October 2017 when my first book came out. And she says it was amazing and she loves it. But at that point in time, she was still going through IVF. Yeah. And this chapter, so just to summarize it before we get into the moments of this chapter that really stand out, is about going through IVF several times enduring several miscarriages, and then eventually the decision that they made to use a surrogate to have their child, her and Dwayne Wade. And this chapter is so in-depth and emotional and vulnerable and like really carries you through the ups and downs of like the first time she ever conceived and being so excited and like telling people about it. And then like through several miscarriages, they just didn't tell people anymore. Like it just became such a part of their lives. I almost feel like not a part of their lives. It became a part of her life. A burden on her. Yeah. And she talks about not wanting to tell Dwayne, not wanting to bring him into her loss and how she just starts dissociating She's just constantly dealing with the ups and downs of her struggle with fertility. And her struggle with her public struggle with fertility. When I did all the things you could possibly think of and none of them worked, maybe it just meant I was a bad person and bad people were not worthy. She talks so much about the success 
that pregnancy feels like in the public eye. Like being publicly pregnant is such a victory, especially when you've publicly struggled with miscarriage. And also just how... As a society, we hate women, but when they're pregnant, we're so much nicer to them. And J-Lo talks about that in her book. Yeah. About when she was pregnant for the first time, people were so nice to her. She says, I envied how pregnant people were revered, immediately respected and trusted and loved upon as a vessel of life. I would forever shake off the distrust society has for women who, for whatever reason, do not have babies. I had paid the cost of that for years and I wanted something for it. So something she talked about in this chapter is that it turned out that she was not just an advanced aged woman who was unable to conceive. She, after going to many fertility specialists, the top doctors in the world, finally went to a woman who diagnosed her immediately with adenomyosis, which is kind of like endometriosis, I think. It's the muscle grows over the fertilized egg. And it seems like the muscle of her uterus was growing into her uterus. But whatever it was, it had caused horribly painful and long drawn out periods her whole life. So in her 20s, she went on birth control and it stopped the symptoms. But of course, it didn't stop the actual disease itself. And she feels frustrated because she goes, I'm 42 my whole life. How is nobody specifically these fertility doctors looked at my uterus and seen what the problem was? There was like a very specific problem. And she says it's because all these clinics... They see that you're over 40 and they immediately write you off. They don't want to take a chance on you. They just cop it up to your age and don't do a second look. And she's like, if anybody had not written me off for being a woman in my 40s trying to conceive, they would have said, well, let's see if there's a second thing wrong here. And they would have found it immediately. So she's just been suffering for no reason going to the best endocrinologists. You do not have to keep choosing between taking care of your skin and wearing makeup, especially in the summer months when... I feel like everything just gets clogged. You are layering on sunscreen and beach and outdoors. And sometimes you want to wear some makeup without just absolutely clogging your face further. And with Kosas, you don't have to make the choice. Kosas makes clean makeup for skincare freaks. Their complexion products are actually proven to make your skin better and are dermatologist tested for sensitive and acne prone skin. And they're hypoallergenic. Kosas Revealer Concealer isn't your mom's concealer. It's super creamy, weightless, and a total multitasker. It's a concealer, an eye cream, and a spot treatment all in one. Revealer Concealer is packed with active skincare ingredients. It offers creaseless, medium coverage with a smooth, radiant finish, and it looks just like your skin, but brighter, more even, healthier. Take the five-step shade finder quiz and find your perfect match. I will tell you, this is the best concealer I've ever owned in my entire life. I have been spending years saying I need to get my under eyes completely replaced by AI. I don't even know what they can do to fix what I've got going on down there. And Revealer Concealer has just done wonders to make me so happy looking at what I look like in the mirror. Millions of people have tried Kosas, making it one of the best-selling makeup collections at Sephora. Their popular award-winning revealer concealer has over a thousand five-star reviews and make it a thousand and one because that's another one from me, baby. Don't choose between wearing great makeup and taking care of your skin. Right now, Kosas is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase of $50 or more when you go to kosas.com slash worm. Go to kosas, K-O-S-A-S dot com slash worm for 15% off your first purchase of $50 or more plus free shipping. That's kosas.com slash worm. And so the idea of a surrogate had surfaced a few times before her diagnosis even. And she didn't want to do a surrogate because she viewed it as an acknowledgement of failure, which of course it isn't. But one of the things that we see a lot throughout this book is her relationship with public interpretation, headlines, comment sections on Instagram and things like that. I think we see this in a lot more celebrity memoirs than anyone would think. Like they are really, really, really affected by not necessarily what the public even thinks, but what they think the public will think. Yeah. And I also just think personally, it's hard for a lot of women. She wanted to be able to do it herself. Mm -hmm. She is a perfectionist. She's like a very hardworking perfectionist woman. And I think it felt like a literal loss. Like she was not a winner because she couldn't do this. And then, of course, there's the other complication here of in 2013, before we were married, Dwayne had a baby with another woman. I should go without saying that we were not in a good place in our relationship at the time that that child was conceived, but we were in a much better place when he finally told me about the pregnancy. To say I was devastated is to pick a word on the low shelf for convenience. There are people, strangers who I will never meet, who have been upset that I have not previously talked about that trauma. I have not had words, and even after untold amounts of therapy, I am not sure I have them now, but truth matters. 
And so I think part of it too is this thing where Dwayne has three biological children and then an adopted child. Is that right? Or two biological children? I think it's two. And then he adopted his nephew. Yes. And for one of them to have been conceived during their relationship when she is struggling to conceive, she took this so personally like it is me. Yeah. He can do this by accident if he wants to. And I'm the one holding us back physically. And then on top of that, he's like, well, stop trying with conception. Let's just do it with a surrogate. And she's like, how dare you tell me what to do with my body after you've done what you've done to our relationship when I'm trying to fix us by making us a family. The murmurs of the unseen crowd came at me again. This woman is such a failure and she has the nerve to be old and she has the nerve to have a young husband and she has the nerve to stick with a guy who has a kid with someone else. Clearly, my feelings weren't originating from a healthy place. So much of what made the decision so difficult was that if I didn't submit to surrogacy, I was convinced I needed to let Dwayne go. I mean, that is a really horrible place to be in. Even if he didn't want to, I had to let him find someone who could give him what he wanted. So eventually she does decide to obviously go the route of surrogacy because we do know now that she has a child be a surrogate. She almost takes this medication that would keep her disease at bay, I think, by like weakening all of her muscles and making all of her bones brittle. And then the hope is that she would be able to get pregnant in this downtime before like it destroyed her entire body. She was going to weaken her whole self to weaken whatever was happening in her uterus so that they could get pregnant and have a baby in the meantime. And there was still only a 30% shot that any of that treatment would even result in conception, I think. It was like a really low shot that it would even work at the first level. Why was I so willing to risk myself for a chance? If there was another way for me to bring a baby into this world and have my health, why was it so hard for me to make peace with that? So they decide to have a baby via surrogate and that unleashes a whole new rabbit hole, which is racism and surrogacy. We chose the most ethical agency we could find and we answered most of their questions about prerequisites with we don't care. So apparently to a lot of people, the race of their surrogate is very important. And then, of course, as in all things, race plays a huge role in how much these women are getting paid and compensated. And it's not fair. And white women are often paid more than their black and brown counterparts for having babies and people will exploit this. And so they were like, we specifically want to be like, we don't care. It doesn't matter to us. But then Gabrielle Union reads Little Fires Everywhere, which is apparently about a gestational carrier carrying an embryo and then stealing the baby. And this really freaks her out. So they're like, we want a white woman. That way, like, if she tries to escape with our kid, people will be suspicious <laughs> of why she has this tall, black-ass baby. I guess I added tall, but it would be a tall baby because isn't Dwayne Wade pretty tall? I think, yes. <laughs> but yeah, so they decide to go with a white woman so she can't steal their baby as easily, which is funny. She's also extremely suspicious of the whole surrogate process. She's like, why would anyone want to do this? Of course, when you go in for a job interview or an interview like this, everyone is saying like they want to be able to like provide the magic of a family to people who can't. But she's like, just say it's money. Like it would make me more comfortable if you just said it was for the money because that's the only thing that makes sense. It is such a weird process. So they finally pick this woman, it's like a married couple that's like hippie white people. She's got a nose ring. They're tatted. They're, you know, of the earth type people. These people say yes to Gabrielle Union not knowing who she is. Like It's a double blind situation. And they show up and she's like, oh, my God, I just read your book from the library. And Gabrielle Union's like, I love that. That's a really good sign. Library people are good people. And I'm like, yeah, and fans of yours are good people. I didn't even think. I was like, yeah, I love that she went to the library. <laughs> the implantation works or the insemination, whatever it is, works. And the surrogate is pregnant and she gets very comfortable and then there are complications and she absolutely panics about how comfortable she got. If I connected to this baby, she would be taken from me at any moment. I curse myself for getting comfortable. She has this fear in her mind that like any baby that she expects or gets excited for, similar to every pregnancy that she had before, if she got excited and comfortable, she would lose the baby. She also starts like looking at her relationship with her mom. Gabrielle Union is a very independent woman, and she is somebody who, like, never calls out for her mom, very rarely asks anything of her. And out of nowhere, she calls up her mom and is like, I want you to be here when the baby comes. And her mom's like, of course, I'll drop everything and be there. And Gabrielle's like, I don't even know why I wanted that. I don't know if I've just caught on this idea that, like, people's moms come, but I don't know. I guess it's nice that she's coming. And I'm like, it's okay. You're allowed to be like, I want my mom around when I have a baby. Especially because later in this book, there's this chapter about how happy to her core she is when her daughter is going through the I want my mommy phase. Mm -hmm. I'm like, moms want to be wanted. I bet your mom is so happy that you wanted her there. Yeah. I mean, Amelia, she's like, I'll come. Meanwhile, when she told her dad, her dad, I guess is a jokester who connects to people with little jabs. And Gabrielle's like, I used to be that way too. And I've actually worked on myself that intimacy is not 
nagging people constantly. But when she says, we're using a surrogate, he looks down at her and he's like, what? And she's like, no, like someone else is carrying the baby. And he says, are you going to let her see her kid after? Her kid. I had to explain surrogacy to him. And no matter what, the concept wasn't getting through that this baby was genetically mine and Dwayne's. He joked about me having to find someone else to get the job done and it stung. It still stings now. Yeah, I do feel like that's not something that is like ready for jokes necessarily. Meanwhile, she's working on LA's Finest with Jessica Biel. No. Alba. I found this part of the book hard. There was a lot of talk about LA's Finest, which is, I think, like an optimum plus only TV show. It was a show that you got for free if like you switched internet providers. I like can't explain it. Yeah. Well, basically, she wanted Jessica Alba on the show and she had created a really like motherhood friendly environment because she thought that if she created that environment for Jessica next season when she has a child too, she'll be able to have good work life balance. But then it's this whole thing of like, I don't really understand what it had to do with most things. Yeah, I guess she was writing this book when she was creating that show. And if I was Gabrielle Union creating a show with Jessica Alba, I'd be like, well, this is going to be a hit. And so I guess they just didn't know it wasn't going to be a hit. (laughs) But she just keeps talking about it. And I know, hit or not, it was what she was doing all day. She was putting a lot of work into it. She's the executive producer. And she was trying to create a crew and a set that lived up to her standards of work-life balance and being there for women. Her big thing was if sets could just communicate and plan well, actually, women could go home and be with their kids. Which I believe there's a lot of uh, ineptitude everywhere, but she just kept cutting back to the show. And I was like, what is LA's finest? We got to get past this. This is the less important thing in your life. Between your daughter and LA's finest, I think we got to focus on the daughter. So that is one of the more boring things about this fairly long chapter. One of the really interesting things is her struggling with the fact that she did not have this grounded connection yet with her child and struggling with feeling like because she wasn't carrying her child, she wasn't as connected. I think that that is like a really emotional and vulnerable thing to talk about because it feels taboo. She also talks about how after the baby was born, they take her home and they have such like a large staff of people that it's weeks before she's even alone with Kavya. She's like, I felt like I was doing everything right instinctually, but I didn't feel like a mother. And she's like, but I almost think it was because I never had to be. There was always a night nurse. There was always somebody there to be in the room with us and tell me how I was doing. And it's not until the first moment that she's alone in the room with Kavya just holding her daughter that Kavya looks up at her and kind of gives her a knowing glance. And she's like, "Okay, this is my daughter. I can trust that she will tell me what kind of mother she needs and I can be that mother for her. Yeah. And then a nurse comes in and she's like, we're good. If I choose to fuss over her, it was because I wanted to, not because I had to perform motherhood. She was not interested in that mom. And of course, now she has a beautiful daughter. There was a couple moments in this chapter where I got really anxious about whether or not it would work. And I was like, oh, no, no, I like know from Instagram that she has a kid. (laughs) She also talks about when they finally told the other kids that there was a surrogate pregnant, how hard it had been on them and that they had been picking up on the emotional highs and lows. And she was like, we thought we were protecting them. And this is something we hear from parents all the time. They're always like, we had no idea they knew that something horrible was happening in our lives. And it's like, yeah, when you live with kids, they pick up on the vibes. But one of the kids, I think Zaire says something really cute, like, you deserve this. You deserve to raise one of us from scratch. And she's like, how did he know that I needed to hear that, like, I was deserving? It's really sweet. It was sweet. Okay, so trigger warning, this next chapter is about sexual assault. You know, it goes with the theme, we're going to need something stronger. This is a topic that she had talked about very openly in her last book. And then this chapter goes another layer deeper. I think one of the things that I find really interesting about the good chapters of this book is it's not just about emotion and vulnerability and trauma. It's like about all of the angles of it, Mm -hmm. too. She really takes small moments in these stories that I feel like so many women have and finds new parts that have not yet been shared. And I think that that's because she's just talking about her true and honest experience with these topics. And they are topics that I think get scratched on the surface kind of regularly, but then have like a PRified stock answer. To me, it feels like a reflection of the fact that she is somebody who's constantly working on herself and is like constantly in therapy Mm -hmm. and like constantly open to delving deeper within herself. And I think like part of this chapter is about remembering a ghost of a version of herself, like remembering these two weeks after she was raped where she just sat and watched the Olympics. And she's like, I had forgotten about that part of this story. Like she had forgotten that this part even happened. And instead of trying to ignore it and being like, I can't go back there, she goes there and feels it and looks at the parts that she has wanted to forget. Yeah. So it's not just about the person she was before and the person she was after. It's about that time in between when she was getting stronger and rediscovering herself and figuring out how to come out on the other side of this horrible, horrible incident. 
because it's not just a one day thing. It's not just one day something terrible happens to you and then the next day you like emerge a warrior. So this chapter really focuses, I think, on the person she was in the interim when she was trying to figure out if this is something that she could survive and who she would become to survive it, like how the calluses would almost set. The context and the perspective she gives in this chapter is very much like looking at it through the lens of a Black woman and how she felt as a Black woman who had been assaulted in a predominantly white town and the way that that fit with like her personal respectability politics and the way that she had been raised to try to exist as a Black woman in this world and like how Black people in America were being treated at the time. So while she's in this period of having just had this assault happen to her, as she's trying to figure out how to move forward in her life, she is watching the 1992 Olympics. So that was the Olympics where Magic Johnson has just been diagnosed with AIDS and he is playing on the dream team, the greatest basketball team to ever exist. There are a few other athletes that she looks to during this Olympics who are taking these major strides forward and who are overcoming quite a lot in the public eye and like watching athletes and the world rally around them. And after watching athletes rally around them, the world is coming around to them. And she's watching these people become like loved and protected. Jordan, Magic, Pippen, Charles Barkley, David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, each was a black lead in his own storyline. And though NBC packaged each as compelling in the Olympic tradition, they didn't need to be. Each man transcended any production team vision to own his story of excellence. Unapologetic in their blackness and stardom, these superstars did nothing to dispel the notion that they thought they were too good and too rich to stay in the Olympic Village. And this is also coming on the heels of the Rodney King trials, where the four LA officers had been acquitted over excessive force in the arrest of Rodney King. And so she's talking about, at the same time, America had just witnessed this brutality against a black person and everyone was like let off free. And they said that they thought it was because the jurors had become desensitized to the video of the brutality. And so at the same time, she's thinking about the way that what happened to her is becoming desensitized in like her white school when people are telling the story of what happened to her. She's watching these black athletes be so celebrated overseas. And on the one hand, she's like, here's all of this black excellence. But also, is it fair for us as a country to celebrate these black athletes when at home we are treating black people so awfully? And I think she's like really processing all of this. And at the same time, she has this white boyfriend whose family is very racist towards her. But after what happened, they really have all this sympathy. And it's like a tragedy. What happened to her like humanizes her to them. And so she's like taking in all of these different experiences and the message that she comes away with, the thing that allowed her to become a survivor is the idea that I could be black and excellent, that if I was just great enough, everyone would love me and root for me. But what I didn't learn until later was that I am free and deserving simply because I exist. I don't have to do all of these other things to be worthy of respect and safety. Greatness is not required. It took a long time to undo that belief, but I understand she needed any lifeline she could grasp to get off that couch. And now from the place that she's writing from today, she says there was the before her, there was the after her, but she's also still the person in that interim as well. Yeah. And she has compassion for that version of herself that was on the couch watching the Olympics searching for a way that she could put herself back together. Because I think a lot of this book is about unlearning her fear of vulnerability and the way that she sees being a woman as being weak or someone to be taken advantage of. And she's like a really like tough, guarded person who relies on herself and doesn't ever want to be needy and doesn't respect neediness and others. And I think she's looking to this moment as a time when that personality trait in her was really defined. And like that's when she decided, if I'm going to get through this, this is who I'm going to become. And I think she's trying to say, like, I understand that that's what was needed then. And I have grace and compassion for that girl on the couch who had to make those choices for herself. But also I can say, like, I don't have to stay that person forever. It's a really interesting essay. Finally, I have to accept that her ghost is here with me and always will be. She is me. I know you guys love listening to stuff. And Audible lets you enjoy all of your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love and something new to discover. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every single genre, from bestsellers to new releases to celebrity memoirs, wink, wink, mysteries, thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the home of storytelling. You can discover thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive series, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, comedy, Audible originals, and more. 
My favorite thing about Audible is not having to sit down to read. A lot of times I can focus a lot better if I'm cooking, if I'm cleaning, if I'm going for a long walk. And so being able to listen to a book while I'm doing other things has been so incredible and helping me get through my honestly massive book list. You will not believe how many books I have been dying to read and I just don't have the time because I have to read a lot of celebrity memoirs. And it has been so nice to really start making a crack at that list. I feel like I'm learning so many new things. I read The Replacements book. I'm about to finally get into Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. So let me know what you guys thought of it. Audible members get full access to a growing selection of included audiobooks, Audible originals, and podcasts. You can download or stream included titles all you want. The Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere, while traveling, working out, walking. You decide. Visit audible.com slash worm or text worm to 500-500 to get started with Audible today. That's audible.com slash worm or text worm to 500-500. So in this next chapter, she quite literally says that she's learning how to embrace her vulnerability and how to figure out expressing her needs as well as opening up space for other people to express needs to her in a way where like they don't have to initiate it. To me, womanliness meant giving without an exception of reciprocity, just the hope of gratitude. My mother has a nurturing nature and my father cheated on her for years. I wouldn't allow that weakness in my own marriage. In the past, when I impulsively showed some softer maternal side to Dwayne, he would immediately respond with love, but I would quickly check myself and bat it away. So she notices Zaya, their daughter, is acting a little bit closed off. There's something going on with her. And so she says, you know, I'll give the space that if she needs to come to me, she can. And then she has this realization, if I have trouble coming to someone when I need help, like I shouldn't just give the space and hope that she comes to me. If she has the strength to ask for help, I should come to her and say, I'm here for the help. Like I need to open the floor. I mean, that is something that a lot of people don't realize. Vulnerability is not only a journey, it's the opposite of perfection. Uh, she does tell this story that really fucking stressed me out about like how Kavya just runs around all the time. She's always running, tripping and scraping her knees. And as a parent, you're told like they'll look to your reaction to see if they should freak out or not. So if a kid falls, you go, you're OK, like you're OK. And then she gets up and they see that like she actually scraped her knees and needed a Band-Aid. And she's like, oh, my God, I denied her feelings. Like what if now she's internalizing that when she's hurt and the people she loves are saying that she's not her and you have to like suck it up. And so she's like, I thought it was a pretty good sign that I wasn't beating myself up about what I said to her, how I'd gotten it wrong. Let's just see if we can do better next time, I thought. And I'm like, oh, my God, being a parent is so stressful. I'm like, <laughs> what are you supposed to say in that situation? Like, I've watched little kids and sometimes they fall and they look at you because they're freaked out and they're kind of trying to suss it out. And they are OK. But also, I'm like, if you have a scraped knee, you are OK. But also, what are you supposed to say? Like, you're OK unless you're not. In which case, we could fix it. But you'll be OK ultimately. And I'm sure it's like nothing bad. But if you have a moment of weakness, you're allowed to express it. And I know you're 18 months old. But <laughs> however you're feeling, I'm happy to be there for you. What do you need as a comfort level? And also, it's not on you to verbalize all your own feelings. And I'm here if you need and when you need. And also, I'll tell you that like I see you need and I'm acting. I don't know. It seems so stressful. Yeah, I, I don't have an answer. So Gabrielle, <laughs> if you're listening to this, hoping we have an answer. Can you tell us what you're supposed to say when a kid falls and scrapes their knees? Because there was not really an answer here, Gabrielle Union. And you kind of nixed both of the obvious options. And I'm kind of like at a loss for what do you say to a kid when they fall down? Think for yourself. If I had been with you when you fell on the, <laughs> the, great. the great, what would have made you feel better, Claire? I mean, I think it's like, are you okay? But n with no panic in your voice. Yeah. But I do feel like, I don't know, maybe the kid doesn't know if they're okay or not. Like a, hey there, how are things? Yeah. Next time you fall on a great, I'll sit down on the sidewalk next to you and say, anything new? <laughs> Next time I see a baby fall down, I'll go, on a scale from one to 10, can you tell me where your pain level's at? And do you think there's internal bleeding or do you think this is external? Do you think skin was broken? Do you'll need a tetanus shot? I don't want to negate your feelings. You're two. You tell me. Do you need a tetanus shot? Close your eyes and see if you can count for me your heart rate. <laughs> uh, it seems stressful. Can we skip the poop chapter? Can you leave in Ashley asking if we can skip the poop chapter? <laughs> and me going, mm-mm. <laughs> I'll sum it up quick. Gabrielle Union, she's just like you. She loves the strip club and she gets real constipated. So what happens in this chapter? You guessed it. On her way to the strip club, being the ultimate cool girl, she was taking two male business contacts, it seems like, after a business meeting to the strip club. 
And she popped some laxies. She does have these thoughts. I'm like, wow, you really are just like us. She was like, I was drunk and I had this idea that it would be smart to take one now so I could poop in the morning. And I'm like, that is a real drunk thought. Like, you're like, I'm so smart. I just thought (laughs) of the smartest thing. And guess what happens? She's getting a lap dance at the club and immediately has to shit herself. But then she goes into this whole thing about how she asked the strippers if she could use their bathroom. And meanwhile, she's like, I've never in my life crossed this boundary. And if someone did this to me, I'd be so upset. And yet they were so nice to me. And I'm like, well, you did specifically say, can I use your bathroom? Like, surely there were bathrooms for you as well. Yeah. But then she's like, they were so nice to me. And at first I rejected their kindness. But then I allowed them to like pat up my brow with a cool rag. And I'm like, okay, Gabby, I know you're in therapy and working on it. And I know that you're just a human. But for her to be like, I would never cross a boundary, but I did specifically ask to cross this boundary. And I don't want them to be nice to me for no reason. But I did a lot. I'm just like, it's okay. You're a celebrity who had to shit. You're not like the rest of us. You got to use the nice stripper bathroom, but you have to let them be nice to you when they're nice to you. VIP bathrooms for celebrities who have to poo, I think is standard. And she said, if you're someone who hates sex workers, just think about this. What would happen to you if you had taken an ex-lax on the way from a business meeting to a strip club? Would you not (laughs) want them to be nice to you? And I'm like, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. Her next chapter is called Good Soldiers. She said some cool things. She was invited to D.C. to stand with Congressman John Lewis as the U.S. Postal Service introduced a stamp commemorating the 50th anniversary of 1963 March on Washington. And so she wants to like impress him with stories about her parents and their civil rights moments. And she calls with her parents and we're like, where were you in 1963? And her dad was a soldier at war where he was specifically not allowed to seem pro-civil rights movement because it made you seem like not a good soldier. And her mom was in high school, so she wasn't doing too much. Her friends were going to sit-ins, but her, her mom, so Gabrielle Union's grandma, had said, you can't go to a sit-in. They're publishing the names of all the kids that go to sit-ins, and some people are losing their jobs. I cannot afford to lose my job, so you cannot protest. And so she has this moment of being like, wait a second, were my parents duds in the movement? And then she's like, no. They did a lot. They did a lot, just not in the splashy way that makes a really good story to talk about at Congress. Yeah, they did it in their own way, in their own time. Her mom is like a really dedicated public servant. She worked in child protective services and she took in as a single mom three foster kids so that they could all stay together. And she adopted three kids in her 60s as a single mom. That's a lot of work. So then she has a chapter called Zaya and it's about Zaya's like coming out to the family in stages. First, she came out as gay. And then she came out kind of as a gender. And then finally, in seventh and eighth grade, she comes out as trans. And she's like, actually, I'm now a straight girl. And, you know, she talks to Dwayne just to make sure that through all of these steps, they're having welcoming and open conversations, that everyone around her is open to it, that they are telling people who need to know, telling people who are ready to have the conversation. And then the world. This one was a little hard for me because I was like, I don't know that opening your daughter up to the internet in any circumstance. Like, I think that now we're having a lot of conversations about celebrities, kids online. I think that you are like by putting your kid out there, opening them up to just a throng of psychos. And so she's like, yeah, in school and in life, everything was really good. And some people on the internet were really mean. And I'm just like, I guess that's just the way it goes. And the only way to prevent it would be to keep your kid offline, (laughs) which you could do. Yeah. It's very much like a role model chapter of like, here is what we're doing as parents. We're listening. We're asking to be corrected. We're being as supportive as we can. And anytime we're wrong about something, like we're quick to follow her lead. We let her tell us what she needs. And we just believe her and support her and love her. And she sounds self-possessed for like a teenage girl. In a good way. Yeah. I mean, she's just somebody who like, you know, at 11 is like, this is who I am. At 12, she's like, this is who I am. Gabrielle Union was like, oh, here's some makeup. Here's how you shave your legs. Like ready to do all the things that are more traditional in the mother-daughter relationship. And like, this is how you become a woman. And I think it's been very eye-opening for Gabrielle Union to see Zaya like reject makeup and hair removal things and be like, I don't need to perform femininity. I am what I am, which is like a 13-year-old girl. And Gabrielle Union has this moment of being like, am I trying to bond with you through like the lens of the patriarchy? Am I trying to be like, this is how we chain ourselves. I actually found that really interesting to be like, do the only things I know about femininity are the ones that I'm like, this is how you're hot for men. Yeah. And so that was interesting. But I I mean, I agree with Ashley. I think I would love a conversation from her about their choice to be so public with their children because... I do think Gabrielle Union and Dwayne Wade take the responsibility of being role models very seriously. And I think they have done a lot of good for representation and visibility. But you guys know our stance on like child actors, having your children on Instagram. 
it seems like Zaya handles it very well. And she's like, it doesn't matter how much shade there is. Like, why would you not live as yourself? Like, I'm happy to inspire other people to live themselves. Yeah. She quotes an interview where Zaya is saying, you know, essentially people are going to be really mean. But to me, it's worth it to be able to live as myself. I mean, it sounds like Zaya handles it really incredibly, but it still begs the question should she have to handle it beautifully and gracefully to the public? Because she talks about all of the like gossip sites bashing their kid. And I'm just like, Jesus. I mean, we were talking about it in terms of them taking role modeling very seriously. At a certain point, I do think sometimes people get confused about what their responsibilities are to the public versus their own family. And I think that there is a lot of greater good being done. But I also think it's okay to prioritize yourself sometimes. Yeah. It is interesting, though, to hear her talk about, like, looking at the mother-daughter lens through a child who is so confident and, like, doing what works for them. Because she's like, look, every time I try to say, like, oh, this is how you be a woman, and Zaya pushes back, and she's like, not for me, watching her, like, redefine what being a woman is, or being a girl, even. She's like, I see now, like, why the mother-daughter relationship is so fraught, because you're just trying to help them exist in this world that is fucked up. And so for them to, like, exert their self-confidence... As a mother, it gets stressful because you're like, I just want you to be accepted. <laughs> yeah. Interesting little chapter that the third book might do a better job looking at this. Yes. It was very much a, we love our daughter and we're great parents to her. May you be a great parent to your daughter too. And if you, you know, have a kid who is a member of the LGBTQ plus community, may they go to a school yeah. that is cool. Yeah. A very expensive LA private school. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are ready for something absolutely fresh and delicious, but with HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasoned recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. If you are new to cooking, new to meal planning, I'm talking to myself. The pre-portioned ingredients with HelloFresh help cut down on food waste so much and step-by-step instructions make cooking a breeze, not a chore. I feel like I'm learning so much about food combinations. You will not believe how little I know. It makes it so easy to feel accomplished by whipping up a meal myself. HelloFresh offers more than just delicious dinners. It's now easier than ever to skip the extra grocery store run by adding snacks, sides, and more to your weekly order. Simply shop the HelloFresh market and take your pick of a curated selection of over 100 items. HelloFresh wants you to have it all, free time and fresh tasty food, and that's why they take care of meal planning and they deliver the ingredients so everything you need to whip up a delicious meal arrives right to your door. I love that HelloFresh is so easy to customize based on exactly what I want. I know what I like to eat, and I am so excited to finally be able to make it myself, especially as I'm diving deep into pescatarianism. It's so hard to not eat the same thing every day once I figured out like the two things I know how to make, and HelloFresh helps me mix it up and make the most delicious meals for myself right at home. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Worm50 and use the code Worm50 for 50% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Worm50 and use the code Worm50 for 50% off plus free shipping. Okay, so this next chapter is about going to college. So she got the advice when she was in high school that when you go to college, don't have sex the first semester. And she was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And they were like, you'll get a reputation. It's just the first semester. If you don't have sex with anyone, you'll be fine. So she goes to college. She has like a really great roommate. She has sex with two different guys like, in the first month. I mean, obviously, she's Gabrielle Union. People see her and immediately they're like, you. So like every time she leaves her house, she gets another boyfriend. She dates this first guy. And then the second guy. The first guy did baby talk. And she was like, what the fuck? And rode a bike. And she was like, you can't say strawberry and strawberry and be on a bike. And I was like, fair enough. I completely agree. And then the other guy was stealing lyrics from Joda Sai. Joda C. I'll get it next time. Slowly but surely, I'm getting every letter correct. And she was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're plagiarizing. Yeah. And she was like, well, that gave me the ick. All of his romantic lines were R&B songs. And then it turns out he also has an ex who hated her. Now she has two exes and an enemy. And the girl is like calling her room every night being like, I'm going to kick your ass. I'm going to kick your ass. And then she's like, this college isn't even for me. I like miss my friends in California. California is so much cooler. So she decides to transfer right before she leaves town forever. She calls the girl. 
and is like, shut the fuck up. I hate you. And what does she say exactly? It's she does funny. salt and pepper lyrics. Oh, she does salt and pepper lyrics. So I don't know if she was right to judge the Jodeci guy, but <laughs> that's a really good point. Anyway, so she calls and then I guess right after she moves out, the girl comes like storming into her room to kick her ass. And she's like, you missed me. I moved. <laughs> And then she goes to college in California. And she says, in conclusion, fuck whoever you want and follow your joy. But it does sound like if you had stayed there fucking whoever you want, you would have had to get into a fight. She says like part of why she left too is there's like no black people at the school. It was like 16,000 white people to like 300 black students. And that was the thing. And she's like, all of the black students were athletes, basically. And she already hooked up with two of them. And she's like, I'm going to get out of here. And I'm like, this is actually why, controversially, I guess I'm a, an anti-feminist. I don't think it's bad advice to be like, hey, try not to fuck everybody the first semester. And not because I think like you have to worry about your number or your reputation. But I do think it's good to get a lay of the land before you lock yourself into a relationship. Sometimes the first person you see is not necessarily the best person for you to have sex with. Sometimes you need five days to like take a survey. Listen, I had a problem in college with hooking up with roommates. I just liked a lot of people who liked the same things. And so then I would find out they were roommates. I just like as someone who did do that thing where my parents dropped me off and literally the first time I left my dorm, I met a boy who I dated that semester. (laughs) I don't think the worst advice I've ever heard is like, take a breath. Anyway, I just made us do that entire chapter because I had the hot take that I actually think those boys did not have bad advice. Okay, this next chapter I really liked. It's called The Audacity of Aging with Hope. And I liked it because I skipped a huge chunk of it. I was like, I hated this chapter because of the stupid way it ended. And now she's like, oh, if you don't read that, though, it's actually quite interesting. Okay, so she talks about being in an age gap relationship where the girl is older and a friend of hers who was in a similarly gapped relationship. Me. Yeah, you're the same. (laughs) When it ended, the way people behaved was very like, well, that's what you get for dating younger. You knew they'd leave eventually. So at least you got the time with that hot young bod that you could. Yeah, they have this idea that like if you act surprised by this, you're a naive idiot and you're not allowed to be sad about the ending of your relationship because everyone's like, well, you had to have seen it coming. This chapter is basically a plea to say relationships are valid. Adult men are not growing boys who eventually hit 36 and are like, actually, I want to date someone my own age. And when they were 34, they were just too young to know better. Like, that's not a thing. Both adults in a relationship are accountable for being honest and vulnerable and open with each other. And both people are players in the relationship. The older woman is not like some lucky make-a-wish gal who like should just be grateful for the time she got. The fact that when Gabrielle Union met Dwayne Wade and he was like 26... That is a baby. That is a baby. (laughs) Except for you met Mac when he was like 19. Yeah. And I look back at all the time and I think, what was I doing? I stole his youth. He was 24. He was 24. But still, I do look back at that time and I think about the things that I used to get mad at him about. Like (laughs) the fact that he only had one fork in his whole apartment and I'd go over and I'd be like, when I come over as an adult, I want to drink water from my own cup. I don't want to share a fork when we get takeout. Or that like he didn't plan well in advance. And I was like, yeah, Claire, you were dating a fetus. Of course, they couldn't plan things. It was a baby. Why would you get mad at 24 year old? That's on you. Can I say, I think people should have two forks. (laughs) Well, you know, the kicker to that story. There actually were many forks. They were just all in the hidden dishwasher. That he didn't tell me about. (laughs) When I opened it, the way I wish I had found women's underwear. (laughs) I was there alone for some reason. And I was like, what drawer is this? And when I opened it and saw an entire rack of perfectly clean, unused dishes in a dishwasher, I like trembled with fury. (laughs) I think he was in Cancun with his friends. I was like, you better get back here right now. You've got some fucking answers to explain to me. (gasps) Oh, poor Mackenzie. I will say something that I felt was lacking in this book was she had a couple moments of brevity. I think she used most of them in her last book. You guys know how we feel about a poop story. We didn't love it, but this one actually was funny. She went out to audition for The Matrix. I guess Aaliyah was supposed to be. Yeah, but she passed. She passed. So they were like frantically trying to recast that character. And like every black woman in Hollywood was going out for it. And so Gabrielle Union had this fresh new idea on the character Z, I think it's called. I've never seen that movie. Did you know that about me? I've never seen any Matrix. I've seen the first one like a hundred times because I keep on thinking I'm watching a different one. And then it's always the first one. And then also every time I see Keanu Reeves, I'm like, I wish I was just watching Point Break. Why would anyone watch The Matrix? I had a friend who accidentally watched the third one first. And she was just like, I can't believe there's two more. I feel like they really wrapped it up. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, back to the story. So she goes out and she like thinks she has a different unique take on the character and not just like a black leather jacket. And she wants it to be like earthy and 
spiritual, but like strong and sexy. And she decides she's going to base the character on Janet Jackson from the If music video. And so she goes and gets the exact weave and she gets the exact outfit. And she even has her makeup artist put a mole on her, just like Janet Jackson. So she goes to the Warner Brothers lot to wait for her meeting. And she's sitting there waiting and they're keeping her waiting. And she's like, why are they keeping me waiting? And then somebody else comes in, like the next actress comes in. And the next actress is Janet Jackson, who like looks at her and like notices what's going on and is freaked out. And Gabrielle Union is like, I went to that audition feeling so fucking confident. And I left feeling so demoralized because I went in thinking I was going to give them a version of Janet Jackson right after they had seen literal Janet Jackson. And then the end of the story is that they actually became friends in Hollywood a few years later, and they're still good friends to this day. And finally, recently, Gabrielle is like, do you remember that Matrix audition? And Janet was like, I was never going to bring that up to you. (laughs) I do think that is truly one of the funnier stories I've ever heard. (laughs) That is humiliating. Really good hair, though. This next chapter is another one that we like every time. I like a balance doesn't exist story, to be honest. I mean, this one was weird. I think that it offers a pretty interesting look at Dwayne. It was tough for me to swallow because I'm rooting for them as a couple. And everything I hear, I'm just like, Gabrielle. Yeah. So everything we know about being a professional athlete is that your life comes first. I guess supporting an athlete is the most important thing. And that's why they usually don't marry someone who has a career of their own because they need a squad. She also talks about how crazy it is that like if a woman has a nanny, people are like, oh, so you're not really the mother. Okay, so somehow Dwayne got full custody of all of his kids and like never met them once until he retired, which I find crazy. So like Gabrielle Union was mostly raising them, but then also had a full team of nannies. And I'm just like, what does that mean then that you had custody? I guess you had more money. I question it. I know I'm not the press, but I question it. I will say she has this really interesting perspective that I've never heard before that he delegated power as the dad, but he never lost authority. Whereas when a mom delegates responsibility, her motherhood is questioned. Like a dad can be there like once a month, but still what he says goes. Whereas a mom, if she's never there, you're just like, who are you? You're not even ever here. The nanny is the mom. So now they have a different situation. She says he never went to a parent-teacher conference. He never had time for anything because he's working out constantly. She's like, when he came home every day to take a nap, Everybody, including the babies, had to be silent, which is a lot to ask, especially because it's like, is your house not quite big? It's open concept concrete. <laughs> I do think sound bounces. Could they make like a padded playroom then where the sound No, contains? the baby could just learn to be quiet. He's a basketball <laughs> star, Ashley. The baby can learn to be quiet. He was on the Heatles. <laughs> That's when the heat was big, like the Beatles. <laughs> anyway, they have a baby and then he retires and everything changes. And now they've decided to make her career first and foremost. So they move to L.A. They get a new house. Who finds all the schools? Who still does all the introduction for his children? Her, for some reason. But believe it or not, Dwayne is wonderful. But like most men, he has never not been the central adult in a family dynamic. A power struggle ensued, one that has continued after this one-year experiment. She's balancing everything. She's been finding a new tutor for the boys. Zaya has a new after-school activity. Gabrielle had been doing something, and now she has a Zoom meeting, and she asks Dwayne to get her a water. And his response is, I don't work for you. And she was like, it's all about his needs. Now that it's my turn, he's pissed. And so she listens to a podcast and they say, what you have to do is live with grace. So she's like, now I live with grace. And I'm like, what about him? What does he live with? It's a renewable resource that Dwayne and I can give each other when one of us is in need. Yeah, her point is balance doesn't exist. Nothing is 50-50. Everything's always at a loss. There is no good male partner. (laughs) I don't know. Your man, he's going to be the breadwinner and demand all the attention. And then when he retires... He's going to be retired and demand all the attention. And all you can do really is work on saying, I love you anyway. I don't really know the lesson was here. Their relationship stresses me out. This is one of those chapters where I think it could have done with more marination. I think the thing about her is because she is somebody who values her independence and really likes about herself that she never asks anybody for anything. Dwayne is a man who goes above emotionally what you would expect from like the stereotypical star athlete. And so all these times he's nice to her at all. Like when she said, I'm going to risk death to try to carry a baby for us. And he's like, don't do that. I love you. And I don't want you dead. She's like, we're connected in a way you can't imagine. (laughs) But also because she's somebody who's never once verbalized a need, she's able to get through that relationship pretty easily without seeing how little he does. That is a man's job is literally to go get you a glass of water. Yeah. That is like the number one thing a husband does for a wife. It's like more important than being faithful, (laughs) which I know Dwayne doesn't take seriously also, but you have to get your wife water. Especially after you've already been unfaithful. I'm like, I don't know if you cheat, then you're really on water duty for (laughs) ever. If I say get me water, your question is tap or sparkling. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's all I want to hear from your freaking little mouth, men. I swear to God, the second your pee is a little bit yellow, that means your husband has failed you. Divorce! <laughs> this next chapter, I think, would have been better in real life if you knew Gabrielle Union. It's just about a dance battle that she has with Serena Williams and Bruno Mars, which I'm like, it's cool. I feel like it's done in the context of being like, I had a friend whose husband was a star athlete and she always felt like she was second and only ever his plus one. So I took her out on the night on the town. And there's a lot of like going out as a black woman in Hollywood. I'm not treated as well as my counterparts, but they had this one incredible night at the Chateau Marmont where they were the queens of the stage. And I understand the importance overall, but I have to say, Gabrielle, if you're listening, every celebrity in their memoir has a chapter where they're describing something that really maybe you just had to be there. And I have to say four pages of describing a dance battle does not really translate. Is it fun to know that Serena Williams apparently is really good at karaoke? Yeah, it was great. We did not need four pages of you being like, and then I stepped, and then he stepped, and then we twisted, and then we twirled. And the next day I was sore. I was interested to learn that Bruno Mars started out as a wedding band. I think that that actually checks out. No, it checks out exactly, but I didn't know it. I just didn't know anybody who ever got into a wedding band got to become Bruno Mars. I thought that was a real ceiling. Okay, so this chapter on a very messy Thanksgiving, there's a lot to this story. A lot goes on. I don't want to get into all of it. But one thing that comes out of this chapter is it's another one that makes me a bit stressed about her relationship with Dwayne. I guess he has a very complex and minimal relationship with alcohol because he comes from a family where addiction is a huge problem. He is an athlete. His body is a temple. He just doesn't really drink very much. And she likes to get drunk and have a tiff with his friends. And so he monitors her alcohol intake. She calls him Chew Drink Max because that's his rule for her. And she's like, but he can't stop me. My friends sneak me drinks. I'm like, your young ass boyfriend. (laughs) I guess I'm like, I guess he's not getting her drinks because he's not getting her water. Like, it's more about the serving of it all. He's like, you want me to go get you another vodka crayon? No, I don't work for you. Anyway, so they go to Thanksgiving. Her whole family gets fucking wrecked. Yeah, she gets everyone way too drunk. And then her sister does this like single ladies dance and her dad freaks out. Blah blah. blah. It's kind of a funny family story. It's cute. But the one thing I'll call her on is she has this line at the end that I like, which is adulthood is about treating our family with kindness that we treat our friends. But in this story, she like really hangs her sister out to dry. She's talking about how embarrassing and messy and like sloppy. She says she's great at the single ladies dance, but her boobs are all over the place and her dad shuts her down. She screams at her dad like a white person would with the F word. That is our thing. That sounds like my Thanksgiving. (laughs) You nailed us. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like especially because we don't get stories about her sister. So that was interesting. She was like, you know how little sisters are. They always want to be the center of attention. Not like Dwayne and me who are just like so used to standing out that we're always trying to fill the room so that we stand less out. Okay, we get it. You're a famous and your husband's even more famous and your sister is just like a drunk desperado. Who dances good. Yeah, she said she nailed the choreography. I guess this middle part of the book is a lot of dancing descriptions. Okay, so then there's a chapter about Isis, who was her character in Bring It On, which this chapter I actually found really interesting. So like you were saying earlier, her ability to continue to go back and re-examine her life. It's a letter to Isis, the character, and how she feels like her characters are her children. And she feels that she actually let her down because Isis is known for having given quite a bit of grace and still kind of deferring to Kirsten Dunst's character. Kirsten Dunst's character. Jesus Christ, that is a constantity name. Dunst is like, ugh, it's like you're choking. I'm going to Heimlich it out of you. So she's writing about this character. And this is what I found really interesting. So last book, she writes about how proud she was of the character and how she toned it down and said, I'm not going to make this like an angry black woman. I'm going to make this a very graceful, reasonable, level-headed character. And now in this book, she's saying, you know what? I actually think we did too much grace. Like, I actually think that these white characters who were stealing and profiting off of black art didn't deserve to become pals afterwards. Like, they deserved a fucking talking to. More than just stopping stealing, they needed to apologize and come clean. She really kind of hones in at the end of the chapter on that one moment at the end of the book where she goes over and, like, congratulates Kirsten Dunst's character, Torrance, and says, you guys were great. And Torrance says, thanks, you were better because, you know, Gabrielle Union's team came in first and was better. And she says, we were, huh? And she's like, that was too much because my character called out any sort of unfairness. My character is still known as the villain of that movie. And she's like, we weren't better, huh? I should have known. I should have said, yes, we were and walked away. And that would have been the end of the movie. 
we were better and I should have been able to acknowledge it. And I couldn't because I was trying to like create this version of the character that could still go to the same college as the white characters. And I'm like, that is a really interesting re-examination. And it's true. Like she says there's polls all the time saying like one of the best villains in movie history. And she's like, villain for protecting my squad. Okay. I thought she was one of the best leaders. Your story, the real one, is that you are amazing with your rage, with your disappointment, your heartbreak, and all your complicated feelings, never in spite of them or because you hid them. I wish I had just given you the space to be a black girl who's exceptional without making any kind of compromise, because that's who I want to be now. That's why I am chasing so much later in life than you to be exceptional by my own standards, unapologetically me. She does a brief chapter on all of her advice, like, work really hard, put your heart in the game. The one thing that I will say is she's like, find your people and don't lose them when you go to the top. You guys got to take each other with you. Look at me and Ashley. Nobody wanted us. Now here we are together, alone, bound, joint at the hip. That one I actually liked, I think, and expand your dream to include others. I think good advice. But I, I think bad advice is be your own yes. She's like, don't be reliant on other people saying yes to you. You have to say yes to yourself first. And I was like, nope, other people have the money. That's not true. Look at us, Ashley. Nobody's ever said yes to us. Like literally, <laughs> who has ever said yes to us? You know what metaphor I came up with today for the way we got to go about our success? What? It's the same way I go for the bus. Running? No. Crying? (laughs) (laughs) Accepting that there's a good chance it might not come. That's so true. Because I take the bus here sometimes, but the way I do it now is I just start walking and I hope that the bus will pick me up on the way. But there have been times I'll be like, I'll just walk and I'll let the bus pick me up when we cross paths and I'll get home and I'll be like, I can't believe I walked three miles and the bus did not cross me. And sometimes it picks me up and I'm like, oh, great. Here it was. I only had to walk two blocks. But the trick is you can't wait for the bus. You got to start walking <laughs> and you got to hope the bus sees you on its route. Be your own. Yes. Be your own bus. <laughs> you can't rely on any sort of bus. I'm the bus. <laughs> so this next chapter, she trigger warns. Which I find interesting because she doesn't trigger warn anything else. And there's like a lot of tough topics in this. Yeah. So they're trigger warning for suicidal ideation. She talks about having suicidal thoughts in her like late 40s. Yeah, she says it's initially triggered by a fight she had with Dwayne. Later, it turns out it's like a hormonal thing. But I will say I did have this feeling of like, I know people fight and marriages are long and hard. But if you're like, want to kill yourself to get back at your husband, I'm like, that's a tough relationship. <laughs> yeah, there's some tough stuff about Dwayne in the this The fight book. they got into is that I guess he has a lot of friends she hates. And he invited one over. And she like didn't want his energy in the house. And she was like, you didn't tell me he was coming. And he's like, you didn't ask who was coming. And she's like, he thinks he didn't lie, but I'll show him. (laughs) I would show his ass if I just died. And then she finds out that there is a huge, not an epidemic, but there are a lot of women who in like perimenopause have a major hormonal swing. Perimenopause is the year or years before menopause when your period gets spotty and the hormones are in flux, but you haven't officially entered menopause. Yes. FYI, it's not spoken about widely enough per this whole essay. And this is so true. This chapter really was frustrating. And like I share her frustration and that I can't believe 50% of the population has or like will go through menopause and still no one will research it. She's like, all of the information on menopause is about how can you be sexy even if your body is dried up and rare? Yeah, they'll only fix the external symptoms for men like vaginal dryness, like hair loss, hair growth, mm-hmm. anything that makes you not hot to men. They're like, well, we'll work on that. But uh, yeah. oh, you're thinking about ending it all? They're like, oh, you're thinking about ending it all? Could that be a symptom too? Is that even a thing? Are we going to add it to the list? Probably not. She had to do research to find out that that is actually like a huge problem that a lot of women endure. And when she says, when you look at famous women who have killed themselves, a lot of times people be like, well, look at their family, look at their divorce, look at this. And she's like, nobody ever looks internally. Like the most common age for suicide for women is the same age of perimenopause. And nobody ever takes into consideration like the hormonal influxes. Yeah. And that is very scary. Literally half the population is involved in a damn mystery that no one is racing to solve. And that is true. I mean, like every woman's issue ever, it is so fucking annoying. I mean, it's just like the classic birth control thing. The testing men's birth control has like one side effect. So like, oh, we can't do it. And women, there's like a fold out pamphlet that's taller than me. And I am a tall woman. She kind of just winds it up. She has a moment with Kavya where she's like, Ugh. I love that she loves her mom. Yeah. And I like being the mom that she loves. She has a lot of good little therapy moments in here where... Kavi goes through like a mommy phase 
And she's like, oh, is it maybe just because I'm working a lot now and she only loves me more because I'm gone and she misses me? And she's like, why do I have to assume that like Kavya only loves me, her mother, because there's less of me now? Why do I have to assume that the love of me comes from the absence of me? Why can't I just be like, she's two and I'm her mom? Yeah. And it's really cute. And then she kind of wraps up the book by being like, we're all strong because we bleed. She's pro vulnerability. I don't believe her. I believe she's like, in theory, it's so good to be vulnerable. But I wonder if her friends are like, Gabby? Yeah, no way. (laughs) I think from even where we've seen her go from book one to book two, I think she's working on it. It's just because she's like practiced stoicism for so long. There's like one chip at a time. I think this to her is like vulnerable. I think she is somebody who is through being a role model, like truly a greatest self. Yes. I think like what she is able to write and what she believes, the story she's able to share really reflect perfectly her values. Yeah. But she's still a person. I have a feeling that she's a real, I got it all. I'll do it myself. I'll get my own water. A work in Prague, we call it. Yeah. And who among us? She is so pretty. So pretty. Fertileness of the soil. I'll give it a 4.5. Well, can I say? Yeah. The good chapters are like a five out of five. That's the thing is I feel like this book is on a spectrum. Like there are chapters in this book that are a hard five. And there are chapters in this book where I'm like, okay, like one and a half. (laughs) Yeah. And you finish it and you felt like you were three or four chapters short. Yes. If you were to drink warm teenies, how many warm teenies, please? Oh, five. Yeah. Five teenies. Get me fucked up. Gabrielle, Nikki, as your friends call you, we'd love to get a drink with you. (laughs) We're the friends now. It sounds like you love to mentor young women. Guess what? We are aging rapidly. (laughs) (laughs) Your window is closing. (laughs) Okay, thank you guys. I love you. Bye. Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers, Omay2811. Oh, man. I love you so much. Party Girl 23 Oh, my God. You are the Michael Jordan of partying. I love you. Mucky baby. I would clean the muck off of your jelly baby hands because that is how much I appreciate you. Jillian Murph. You've got the stirf that I appreciate. Thank you, Kelly M458857. How did you know those were the numbers that unlock my deep appreciation for you? Thank you, Chubby Danny. You are just the most wonderful Danny to hug. I don't even like hugs, but I would hug a Chubby Danny. Thank you, Lineth20. I'm going to draw the line right here and say, I fucking love you. Claire Ashley Fan69. Ooh, saucy. Well, I'm a whatever your name is fan. Smacky Chan. Oh, my God. I would love to karate chop my thanks into your heart. That's it for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you.